When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Chris, welcome to Building Blocks. Hey, Ash, thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. Uh, It's great to see you again, too. And it's great to have you on this podcast to talk a little bit about your journey into the crypto space. You've had an incredible life. Uh, So it's fascinating to have you on this show, especially to talk through that. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks, Ash. Well, I grew up in a a small town, a little place called Long Valley, New Jersey, uh, which for the viewers, they may not know that, Ash, I think you have a similar background. Indeed, I do. We went to high school together. We didn't actually know each other in high school. We reconnected many years later, but we grew up in the same small town, uh, New York City suburbs, about 45 miles outside the city. Uh, Absolutely God's country. I grew up across the street from a cornfield in the woods, uh, and you shared a similar experience. Yeah, I grew up on a dirt road. Um, People don't realize it. It's uh, pretty rural, a lot of farmland. And uh, so anyway, went went to public school there. And then I think one thing that most people from Long Valley want to do is is get out of Long Valley. Um, So so my my journey out was to join the U.S. military. Um, I was appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy, and uh, off I went uh, there. Uh, and then, you know, after I graduated, I went into a, this adventure called the United States Marine Corps. And uh, it was uh, it, it was an incredible journey. Uh, I got to serve all over the world. Um, you know, the first thing they asked me is where I wanted to be stationed. Um, and I realized that Hawaii was one of the options. And so I immediately jumped on that. I mean, if you're from Long Valley, you jump on, a, on an opportunity to go to Hawaii. Um, yeah. Exactly. I spent um, a lot of time throughout the Pacific um, Working with foreign governments, um, you know, everywhere from working in Japan to the jungles of Thailand, all over the place. And um, eventually, uh, while I was in Asia, saw 9 11 uh, happen. And uh, I think, like many of us, it really impacted me. Uh, I was just about done with my required service. And then at that point, I realized that I, I couldn't get out at that point. My sister was impacted down at Battery Park. Um, she was she was injured, uh, had a bunch of friends who were impacted as well. And so I knew that I needed to stay in and continue to serve. Um, next thing I knew, I was uh, I was in a, in a preparatory school getting ready to go um, overseas into the fight. And uh, I got orders actually to go to Mississippi of all places to help train reservists so that they could go and fight. And um, I, I wasn't having any of that. So I was able to find a Marine who didn't want to go. I switched orders with him. Uh, and the next thing I knew, I was on a plane uh, heading over to Iraq. Um, Iraq was a, was a really uh, formative part of my life. It gave me incredible um, perspective. Uh, I landed in, in, uh, in downtown Ramadi eventually, and I was greeted by a guy named General James Mattis. And uh, under his leadership, I you know, was part of the Battle of Fallujah for a little bit. Uh, and then 
after that, I, I requested to go down to the city of Ramadi uh, to get onto the streets with uh, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, which is one of the most uh, decorated battalions in the Marines. And um, there we waged, we were, we were faced with very, very uh, challenging urban combat for uh, like seven-month deployment, uh, you know, it was uh, it was tough. We you know we took a number of casualties. Um, a number of folks uh, didn't make it home, uh, but my job was to go out there and really to provide um, a lot of civil affairs support um, and, and really work with the local population to give them services and to help them uh, as as we were you know battling a very very difficult enemy at the time. Um, but anyway, we I was able to transition out of that and um, came back home. One thing led to the next, um, and I was thinking about going back into more government service, uh, but I met a young lady. Uh, she became my girlfriend, um, and now she's my wife. Uh, and she said, hey, listen, you know, you have some friends over there at, at, down at Lehman Brothers. They're traders. You know, why don't you go down and maybe you're going to like it? Who knows? Uh, so got on, got on the subway and uh, headed over there to, to meet my old buddies uh, that I was stationed with in Hawaii. And one thing led to the next. I said, hey, do you have a suit? I said, yeah, I've got a suit. How about a resume? And I cobbled together something. Uh, one thing led to the next, and uh, I, was, uh, I was hired pretty much on the spot. And so then as a, as a young Marine who had transitioned after you know, that combat experience, uh, I, I asked to go into uh, what was known as the associate class at the time. And I know Lehman Brothers looked at me and they're like, you know, who do you think you are? You think you can be in the associate class? And I was like, yeah. And uh, the associate class was, you know, effectively the top 30 valedictorians from the top MBAs in the world. And, uh, and I said, you know, come on, give me a shot. And uh, they're like, but you don't have an MBA from a top school. And I said, well, you know, I just got back from, from Iraq. I learned a little bit there. So they, they let me go in. And uh, so I started part of that, that associate class. And then I began a, a career in finance. Yeah, a little something about performing under pressure had already been under your belt. Yeah, you know, they, they said, you know, explain to me why you think finance made sense. And um, I'd spent a lot of my career as an artillery officer. And I said, look, all I do for a living is I make very timely and accurate calculations and I have to manage risk. But if my risk is wrong, people die. You know, if your risk is wrong, you lose a little bit of money, maybe a lot of money, as we would later find out. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, I think that resonated with, with them and they, they took a chance on me and, uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful that, that they, they gave me a chance and that that's all that I wanted. Yeah. I mean, two points, you know, first, obviously, thank you for your service, an incredible story. Uh, some of the most brutal combat since the second world war, uh, a really extraordinary story. And second, you know, the context that this sets up for you, obviously, um, People who are listening to this podcast who have backgrounds in finance uh, know what is about to come next with Lehman Brothers. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, particularly uh, coming off this service uh, that you had just uh, done in a war zone. Yeah. So the first thing was that I knew that there are things that I could control and there are things that I couldn't control. Uh, I knew that I didn't have that MBA, didn't have that robust background in finance, Um but I knew I could control how hard, or how hard I worked. So I did. I'd get up at four in the morning. I'd study for the CFA, um, trying to get myself caught up in the technical side. But it was a non-technical side. Some of the leadership skills I'd acquired and, and other ways to navigate risk, um, I think, paid off in the end. And over time, you know, I was able to kind of reach some parity, hopefully. Uh, boss quit. And I, and I 
you know, as you go around as a young Marine, you try to like interview for the various desks, you know, some folks were automatically allergic, other folks were like kind of into it. But, you know, what I tell people as well is anytime you're searching for a job, it's a search for people, not a search for the job. Uh, my class, everyone tried to get into mortgages. Mortgages was everything. Um, for me, you know, I, my wife's in mortgages. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, but I was able to find some good people because I needed them to teach me. Um, and so I landed on a desk called Derivatives Prime Brokerage. And, you know, throughout my career, I've always been attracted to innovation. Uh, and this was a new business. It was a startup. And we were working in the derivatives industry with hedge funds, trying to deliver them operational and capital efficiencies. And I, I liked building something. My boss quit after 18 months, and um, I raised my hand as a young associate. I said, listen, uh, can I run this thing? And they said, but you know, you just got here. What do you know? And I said, you know, I know as much as anybody else. It's a startup. Give me a chance. And they did. Um, and so I took that business, and I just started growing it like crazy, brought on clients. Things were going great. Uh, but then obviously, we started to hit some volatility in the markets. And you know, I remember... Um, Things started getting very crazy as the global financial crisis kicked off, um, and you know suddenly we went from offense to a lot of defense, consolidating risk, risk management. Um, and then I remember Bear Stearns happened, and when Bear Stearns uh, was bought by J.P. Morgan, um, I remember it was a weekend. I was working at my desk consolidating my risk, and then I remember the MDs at Lehman came out and started plastering two-dollar bills on the wall. Um, which is, was another interesting perspective for me to watch. You know, here a company was really, really essentially went down, and and they were uh, they were kind of laughing at it. Um, you know, as time went on, what did that symbolize for folks who aren't in finance? Oh, the two dollar bill. I apologize. Um, yeah, so J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns for two dollars originally, and so I remember the, the, the Lehman managing directors thought it was the funniest thing, and they assured us that we didn't have a problem, um, which is uh, <laughs> which is an interesting perspective, right? So time went on, and then we realized we had a huge problem. And I remember, you know, being at the heart of it. And I was in the middle of deriv- I was in the middle of Lehman Brothers and the derivatives industry. I had about a hundred billion dollar book of 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 prime of, of derivatives that I was I was in charge of from a prime brokerage perspective. Um, and then I remember it got very hairy, and, and I was consolidating my risk, you know, consolidating my risk. And I remember when we went down at Lehman Brothers, I was at a birthday party. I had like a one-year-old at the time, and it was the ops team. And they said, get me your risk. Get to the office. We need to consolidate your risk. And I said, give me a second. I'm heading in now. And they called me back five minutes later, and they said, forget about it. We're expletive. And uh, then it was a lot of uncertainty, right? You walk into the office that that next day, that Monday, and you have no idea what's going on. But as a combat vet, I was like, gosh, well, nobody's shooting at me. Let's see what happens. And um, let me see if I can help anybody. And I remember I had one client who um, who had wired like $50 million to the estate. It was an operational error, called me up and said, oh my God, like I, I wired this thing in. Can you help me? And uh, was able to make some phone calls, was able to help him out and a DK and reverse that, that wire. But um, you know, what I learned during that process, and, and it was insane, watching people like their hair's on fire, don't put anything in writing, we're going to jail, people hiding under their desk, you know, it meant a lot. And I think one thing that helped me later in my career is I picked up the phone. And yeah, there's a guy, or it was always a guy, swearing on the other end, but hey, where's my money? Where's my collateral? And explain to him, hey, listen, you know, this is how the law works. You're part of the general estate now. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. But at least being honest and helping people navigate, I think, helped me because that one guy that I helped out, he eventually became my my first client at my next shop, and and that was an interesting story because the day after my phone, the day after we went bankrupt, uh, my phone rang and it was City, and they said, "Hey, do you want a job?" 
And I said, well, what kind of package do you have? You know, and I don't know what I was thinking. And they said, uh, it's a great package, Chris. It's called the job. And so I got on the C train and um, fascinating perspective because I showed up at my new shop, City, and all my Lehman trades were gone because we'd gone bankrupt. And so I had, the first thing I had to do was clean up my own mess. Um, and so, uh, it, I mean, it was an interesting perspective of going into it and then cleaning up my own mess. Um, and then uh, something happened because I was in the middle of this derivatives industry. It was kind of niche And then all of a sudden, you know, global policymakers and regulators came together in 2009 and they said, that's it. We're going to completely revamp um, the derivatives industry. And I had been in the industry for like a couple of years, but now I had more experience than anyone in the world at what I did. Uh, Not only derivatives prime brokerage, but going through an insolvency and then cleaning up an insolvency on the other side. And what the the global policymakers and and ultimately we had in the U.S. Dodd-Frank hit. Um, they mandated that the $700 trillion derivatives industry uh, was to go from being unregulated to being regulated. And there I was in the middle of it, um, raised my hand as a young vice president and said, guys, give me a chance. Uh, I can do this. Let me build this for you. And they said, but you're just a young VP. And I said, yeah, but I've got this experience. Give me a shot. And, And they did. Um, and it was interesting at the time because uh, a guy named Gary Gensler was the chairman of the CFTC, and he'd come back later in the story because he's the chairman of the SEC now, uh, very involved in crypto. But um, you know what we did then was built this business. It was one of the only businesses to come out of Dodd Frank, and um, you know went back to the Marine Corps roots, built out a globally diverse team. Um, you know, and and also you know diversity was a big part of the way we built it out. Specialized. Uh, differentiated, and um, nobody thought that City was going to barely survive the crisis. Next thing you knew, we built the largest, most effective uh, regulated cleared business in the world. So um, that business started taking off, very global in nature, running around the world, speaking to regulators, really to try to solve this problem uh, and build build this new business. A super exciting time. Um, Things continued to go well at the bank. Uh, we grew, we innovated, we came up with new ways to protect money, new new ways to deliver efficiencies to our clients. Uh, it was it was very uh, at the time cutting edge. Uh, it was new, um, and then in 2018, got a tap on the shoulder. They said, "Hey, we got a problem." And I said, "Okay, what is it, guys?" And they said, "We want you to look at this business. It's called our foreign exchange prime brokerage business." And, you know, knew about it, knew what those guys were up to. And um, wouldn't you know it, we had a huge problem. And they actually, Bloomberg reported $180 million loss. Uh, and the next day they told me to take charge of that one. And um, it was, uh, had a, essentially, again, deployed my team. We had to build out a foundation, uh, follow both regular, I was dealing with multiple regulation, regulators across multiple jurisdictions. Uh, cleaned up the risk management there, and then returned it to a number one business. Uh, and then by the time I left City, I was asked to also run our global futures business. So uh, futures, uh, it's, it's, it's a business that's been around since, I think, 18th century Japan, very focused on, on risk management, um, you know, started in the agricultural sector. Uh, but, you know, over time, it emerged into being a, a really important tool for risk management across financial tools as well, financial instruments, uh, and by the time I left, I was in charge of um, electronic execution, voice execution, clearing. So I had those three businesses, had around 725 direct and indirect reports. It was over a half billion dollar business. Um, but something had been nagging at me. And, and, I, and it, was, it, would, it had been bothering me since I started looking at, at crypto 
in 2015, 2016 era. Mm. And, you know, I felt as though I needed to get I, I couldn't ignore this trend that was happening. And like throughout my life, right, I, I always wanted to be on the cutting edge. I wanted to be on the cutting edge of history. I wanted to be on the cutting edge of building things. I mean, even in Iraq, getting dropped into an, an urban combat situation that like few people had ever experienced, it was always about innovating tactics. Like how do you outthink the enemy to deliver services to the people? And so I actually read a book on on crypto back in like 2016 and the light bulb went on and I'd seen how I'd been working, you know, in this traditional finance industry and a lot of the technology that we had was slow. It was arduous. It was batch driven. Settlement cycles took days, right? And immediately the light bulb went on and said, wow, if we can deploy this tech, right? And, and, you know, in the beginning, it was all about the blockchain. People didn't really understand crypto in the early days, particularly in traditional finance. And it was hard to, yeah. to disentangle the few, the, the two. But, like, it was all about – so this light bulb went on. You know, wow, I think we can do something here. Um, and, and then, you know, we uh, – I took it to the firm and I said, guys, uh, look, I think we have this new technology. I think we can do something special with it. We can differentiate ourselves with it because we can settle things in real time, and and they 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 kind of they're like yeah we see it but like you know just send it to like the major utilities let them figure it out and you know over the years I tried and I tried um, and then the and then you know along the way. Um, you know, it was very hard. Like working in traditional finance, you're subject to, to a ton of regulations, and essentially, all your emails are screened, your personal trading screened. And at a certain point, I realized um, that I was allowed to to start trading in in the technology, and that's when the the, the light bulb really started going off. And um, you know, saw some cycles happen. I remember 2017, you know, massive adoption, um, and and it was a little bit different than what I'm seeing now. In, 20, in 2017, people started calling me, and they knew that I was a major provider of derivatives, and they, they would say, hey, you, Chris, you, you figure out, I got to get into this market. Get me into this market. And I had realized the potential because of what I had seen, um, but I would say, listen, are you speaking for yourself or are you speaking for your company? And back in 2017, it was like, you know, this is the ICO boom time frame. They would say, well, I'm speaking for myself. My company would never touch this in a million years. Right. Well- I don't think it was a million years because, yeah, we went through some cycles and then, you know, come around 20, like like 2020, right after COVID, something interesting started happening. And I started getting calls and it wasn't those traders anymore. It was the institutions themselves. And they would say, hey, I've got to figure out how to get into this market because this is this thing starting to institutionalize. I've been missing out. Bitcoin's the best performing asset class of eight of the last 10 years. I feel like I'm starting to have reputational risk because I'm not in this market, not because I'm. Yeah. And so the last thing I did at City before I, I made the move to my current firm, Coin Fund, was I was like, you know what, darn it, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna take Bitcoin and Ethereum futures. And I'm gonna and, and they'd been launched in the CME, but we hadn't been able to get them off the ground because of the various approvals needed. So damn it, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this done. And um, I took. And it took. I had. We had to take this product up to our reputational risk committee. Uh, eventually, we made it through that, and then I had to take it through a certain uh, new product approval process. 
There are about 65 people uh, that tried to stop me from bringing it live, but in the end, uh, we got it approved, and um, and we were able to, to launch uh, that product. Yeah. So that was uh, that was a story of traditional finance, and um, and then you know, as I mentioned, started started seeing the the, 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 the innovation begin to take off. And yeah, I, at Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You know, this is such an important point. And for people who haven't maybe worked uh, in banking and financial services, I was doing some fintech stuff in the early 2000s, uh, 2005, I think up until about uh, 2006. Uh you know, the fascinating thing about this is just how antiquated these systems were. I don't think people who weren't there realize the VAX VMS, the mainframe stuff that had existed uh, from the 1960s. Uh, we had folks at big banks uh, in those days who were basically paid to hang out and sit in the corner and drink coffee in case one of these systems broke because you couldn't hire new graduates, for example, to do that work. You had to have uh, you know these guys and gals who'd been doing it for 30 years. They were the only people who could repair and maintain these systems. It's hard for people to understand when you talk about this framework of innovation, just how backward facing those systems were that ran the critical infrastructure of the deepest and most liquid capital markets in the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, we still have green screens in the traditional sector, like 1990s technology. Uh, I, I just uh, testified in front of Congress a couple of weeks ago, and that was my whole point was, listen, guys, ladies, we're in a 24-7 market. Crypto is here. These markets are live. They trade in real time, and they're volatile. And the legacy technology that we have, and, and what happens with legacy technologies, you know, it could take days to settle if you're settling yeah. in, right? In futures, we do a once-a-day batch collateralization process where we hope all the tech works and people pay each other and things settle. Um, yeah. But the lack of technology and the latency of the technology allows yeah. risk to accumulate in the system. And my point to, to Congress was, look, it's okay to take out certain intermediaries, certain nodes, because like we can settle in real time right now. We can risk manage in real time. Like Let's not get in front of ourselves and try to yeah. Um, try to rely on an, an age-old regulatory process that required intermediaries because the tech was so bad, right? Yeah. So we would actually need intermediaries so we can look in as a regulator and make sure that those intermediaries married, married well, managed well because that's that's the only point that you can kind of peer into. Yeah. Now we have this real-time technology that allows for um, the decentralization and and the sp and the spreading or or the of uh, 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 the decentralization of risk. So, you know, it, it's an ongoing process, but you're right. Like the technology is outdated. It's very hard also to rip out the foundation and build it afresh. So, you know, sure at the same time, we have an incredible opportunity to embrace the technology. Yeah, you know, you you have you're talking about the ability to settle uh, here in in minutes. Uh, some technologies, uh, fractional seconds. I remember back in the early 2000s, this was an era where bulge bracket investment banks were literally 
printing out spreadsheets uh, and having guys and gals circling numbers and writing DK next to it. By the way, you mentioned DK. DK means don't know. I don't know this trade. I don't know this transaction. This is the most manual reconciliation process imaginable. Now, this may seem uh, a little bit, uh, you know, in the weeds, uh, kind of a little bit tedious, but fundamentally, when you've got the plumbing for the financial system dependent on these types of technologies and these type of processes that they necessitate, it is a significant risk to global competitiveness for the United States. Frankly, there are those who do not wish us well in the world who are moving much faster, implementing new technology and building their systems from scratch without needing these kinds of legacy processes sitting in between. Totally. So if you, you know, I'm a derivatives guy, so that's what I talk about. If you look at crypto derivatives right now, 95%, we believe, uh, of that activity is migrated overseas. Hmm. Uh, We're left with very few products here. Um, why? Because the current system, the current technology, it just doesn't have the capacity and it can't keep up, right? Because it's slow. And what happens is risk starts accumulating at these intermediaries because risk is put on, the clearinghouse calls them for risk and their clients pay them back, you know, and that could be a couple of days or, or uh, depending on like, you know, cure periods. And so the risk accumulates. Um, so th- the fact is, is that we have robust markets overseas. Um, I think it's important that here in the U.S. we embrace the technology uh, to bring it back on shore. And that's the only way we're going to do it. You know, there's this old cliche that life has to be lived forward, but only understood in reverse. And some of these, you know, when you talk about the experience that you've had, you know, FX, derivatives, risk, managing crisis, all of these sort of very much shockingly, in a certain sense, uh, relevant right now in the crypto space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, I don't think, you know, we, we've, been, we've been speaking a lot about this. Um, we always end up in the tail, no matter what. It happens over and over and over again. And so it's really important to understand what principles we're trying to solve for when we embrace new technologies, right? And I, I think... If you go back to the fundamental thing that we mentioned in the beginning, and this is just one thing, it's 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 better, uh, more rapid settlement times. If you can settle assets very quickly, you can you can eliminate risk in the system. Settlement risk is a big deal. I'll also tell you that it's a very one of the very when you when you step back a little bit and you look at the application of blockchain technologies, settlement is just one little thing, right? Because what we're doing at the end of the day with blockchain technology is it's a fundamental innovation on the ledger itself. And ledgers sit at the heart of any financial system, at the heart of any economy, and I would argue at the heart of any civilization, right? Because it's tracking title transfer. And, you know, as we start unpacking, you know, we're talking about a small instance here where, yeah, we can increase settlement time in financial services. Well, guess what? You know, at at a greater level, we're also now have the ability leveraging cryptocurrencies to introduce private property into the internet, uh, which unleashes an incredible host of other opportunities across the board. Right. So tell us a little bit, Chris, about what your day-to-day is today. What are you doing? uh, And what is it that you find to be most important about what's happening in your role right now? Right. So after I left, uh, you know, I, I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, by at nights and weekends, I was all over DeFi. I was learning about decentralized technologies. I was touching and feeling it. Once I realized that I was allowed to at the bank, 
one thing led me to the next, and I started looking across all of Web3. I said, I've got to find a home here. Where is the right place to do it? I looked in some of the centralized exchanges. Um, I ended up meeting the team at CoinFund. Um, and the chemistry that we had was just spectacular. Um, very, very, um, they're, they're OG investors. They began um, their journey back in 2015, been in the space, understood the community. And I joined uh, the company as president because um, they're very, very good at what they do as as native um as a native investment management fund. And I came in really to scale it because my, my entire history has been taking businesses and, and, and growing them in, in major global ways. And so now as president of the company, um, I it's the most exciting job in the world. Every morning uh, we have a nine o'clock meeting and we hear from our, our research team about the most innovative things you could imagine across Web3. Uh, we look across a number of different verticals, uh, everything from the NFT space and a lot of tooling around NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Um, gosh, we could spend an hour talking, we could spend days talking about NFTs, uh, non-fungible tokens, right? They are, you know, right now we focus a lot on art as an initial entry point, but gosh, you can make a token out of anything and that, and, and, you know, think of all the infrastructure around that with, uh, valuations and things of that sort. We look at DeFi, decentralized financial technologies, which, you know, as opposed to the centralized systems of today, you know, allow users to access. Um, and everything we do in crypto is global as well. And so there are, there are a myriad of, of instances where DeFi technologies can really create a more inclusive financial sector. So we look there. DAOs are just something that are, are super interesting. Um, decentralized autonomous organizations, that's where communities form. They issue treasuries, and then they deploy those treasuries in accordance with their ideals. Um, this is a sector that's just only being understood and getting off the ground. I think a good um, example for, for listeners is maybe Constitution Dow, where across mm. five days, $50 million was raised across 17,500 wallets for the express purpose of buying the U.S. Constitution. Uh, they later failed, um, but showing the way that that a community is able to deploy technology um, – Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Gaming is another vertical. Um, a lot of what we're seeing across all these different um, verticals is gamification, um, whether it's play to earn, and, and there's, a, there's a number of different interesting communities. And there's also a degree of interconnectedness of, of, of these verticals, right? Because you can take an NFT, you can play it in your game. Uh, we're looking at financialization technologies where you can maybe borrow land or you know fractionalize at some point that NFT. So there's DeFi embedded, and, and then you have a community where, where it seems like a DAO. So despite talking about these verticals, um, there's a degree of interconnectedness. And then look, we, we, we talk about being a Web3 company. Uh, there aren't too many internet uh, investment advisors out there. And so I think over time, you're going to see these worlds converge. Uh, we'll, we'll be on you know cutting edge tech investors. So anyway, uh, very involved on, on the investment front. Um, yeah. I also spend a lot of time building the company, bringing in talent, right? Diverse, and, and we're very focused on ESG. Um, you know, how can you not be... A diverse, how can you not have a diverse team if you're trying to think about the future, right? So we, we're trying to build out the, the most incredible, world-class, diverse team, um, sp speak to, to LPs, and I help our portfolio companies really build, right? And, and that's a huge part of, of our ethos is, you know, we believe in ushering in a responsible era of Web3. 
Uh, and the way to do that is to work very closely with our founders, uh, you know, the folks who found their companies, entrepreneurs, to help them build, uh, to help them understand our experience, you know, how to, how to operate when, as regulations crystallizing, um, ways to, ways to, to, to grow their business model, make it more accessible, bringing in, you know, the network of tr- folks from traditional finance. And so, um, I'm also spending a ton of time with, uh, with regulators and governments, uh, got a chance, like I said, to, to, to testify in front of Congress recently, um, speaking with governments across the world on effective policy design and, and helping regulators as well. Um, I think most countries want to get this right. And we're seeing material change in, in tone where, oh my gosh, you know, Silk Road, this stuff's nefarious and bad to, wow, the light bulb is going on. How can I differentiate my country? How can I attract business, employment, um, innovation to my country. I'm seeing that globally right now, and it's incredibly exciting. Yeah. You know, Chris, you've just mapped out this kind of laundry list of the most exciting technologies in the world, some enormous opportunity, obviously, for to improve efficiency, to improve, improve global competitiveness for the United States. But at the heart of this all, for me at least, as I look at this, there's this core paradox, right? which is, it's like, I call it the party like it's 1999 paradox, which is you can see the future. You can see it sort of quivering over the horizon. You can see the direction that all this is heading in. And yet, and yet at the same time, because of this technology providing instantaneous liquidity to all of these protocols, there is extreme volatility, extreme risk, particularly uh, in the newer, less proven protocols. We're having this conversation uh, in the wake of the uh, Terra Luna collapse. How do you think about that, particularly as an investor, knowing that some of these technologies are going to blow up and blow up spectacularly, simultaneously, being able to see this future. I, I referenced 1999 because many of us uh, who were there working on Wall Street uh, in those days could see the world that was coming. Frankly, the world that we live in right now, and yet, once again, we saw this tremendous volatility. I believe Amazon, if you bought Amazon at the peak, I don't have the chart in front of me, in 1999, I believe you were underwater for something like eight and a half years. And this is Amazon, the great success story of the era, uh, and not even counting in the survivorship bias, the the pets.coms of the world. How do you think about all of that broadly, and how do you reconcile it in your own mind? It's a great question, Ash. Um, If you think about it, Bitcoin came around 2008, Ethereum 2014, 2015, and those are like the blue chips, right? And if you think about it, Every other protocol beyond that, with exception, is about five or so years old, right? So we're dealing with a very, very young asset class that's immature. And, you know, one thing that you'll see as you start messing around in Web3 is that the user experience has a lot of improvement to go. But when you step back and you think about, you know, potentially, you know, investing in one of these assets, the important thing to take away is that it's pretty much all venture risk at this point because the asset class is so young. How do you mitigate the risk, right? You do so through incredibly robust research, right? What does that mean? That means being able to have the capabilities to look at the code at the code level, right? Understand what the code says, understand you know, gaps in the code, the quality of the code at a very basic level. It's really understanding communities and teams, right? The, it, it, 
you have to really understand and have a, 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 a vision about founders. Hey, are, are these the types of folks that are going to make mistakes? Are they going to recover from mistakes? You know, do they have vision? Can they build teams? Um, and where they have gaps, and, and all of us do, can we solve them? Do we have unique capabilities that we can uh, leverage our networks and, and our resources to help them close their gaps? Uh, are they aware of their gaps? Um, you know, what's the total addressable market? You know, what are, what are they trying to do here? What's the applicability? So I, I think at the end of the day, it's a, it's a very volatile world. Um, the other thing is that, you know, frankly, our regulation is not yet advanced to a degree. Um, and I think it fuels this, right? For example, like derivatives, 95% of derivatives are not in the United States. If you're trying to operate in the United States and you can't access derivatives markets, it's very difficult to hedge risk. And so these are things that that we continue to focus on. But if you look at the, the state of play right now, macroeconomic forces are impacting all asset classes, right? Everyone's been hit, every asset class. There are two distinct differences in crypto, I think, that are tailwinds that, that people should think about. First, um, regulatory de-risking is happening. And like I said, I've seen this material change in, in outlook where regulators, policymakers are now saying, we need to get in front of this. There's a number of bills you know, work, getting worked through before Congress right now on, on being able to put um, some clarity around you know, how this asset should be treated. And, and as you eliminate um, that gray, it'll, it will allow founders and entrepreneurs to build within that framework. And I think clarity is what many of us are asking for. And we think that clarity is going to be forthcoming, particularly in the US, particularly probably after midterm elections, which we're seeing a number of pro-crypto candidates look like they're going to be coming into office, which is exciting. The second material de-risking tailwind is is one of institutional adoption. Uh, We've been talking about this for a long time. Every asset manager that I speak with has a digital asset strategy. Uh, I spoke to one, a CEO recently, she said, I'm launching 10 liquid strategies this year. And so that institutional adoption will also, I think, have a, have a pos- positive impact on some of the volatility as these industries mature. But it's early, right? A lot of this risk is venture risk, and, and venture risk has a different profile than it does with you know equities or, or bond investing. So it's something that people really need to think about before they dedicate their life savings you know, to, to a particular protocol. Um, but, but again, I think with appropriate diligence and, and you know, maniacal focus on, uh, on the detail, uh, I, I think it's something that, 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 one, that one can navigate. Yeah. Chris, an incredible conversation here today. We've just been able to scratch the surface of some of these obviously very complex, detailed issues. I would urge anyone who'd like to hear more uh, to go and sign up for Real Vision's free platform on the crypto side where they can listen to you and I uh, have multiple conversations about this in a lot more depth. But I want to ask you as we close out this conversation, in your view, what are you going to be doing in three to five years? Where do you see yourself and how do you see the shape of the world? So you know the timeline is is, is um, it's difficult to to understand to to surmise, but like like I said, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. You know, CoinFund is known as a, a a one of the OG you know truly native Web three investment uh, investment managers. You know, and, and I want to transition that to you know as as crypto becomes mainstream, I want us to be known as one of the best investment advisors in the world. You know. Crypto or not, 
And I think it's going to be easier because I think these worlds are going to be coming together between traditional finance and and Web3. Um, so I'm excited to stay at the, at, the, at the forefront of innovation, you know, working closely with founders to, to really take them to the next level. Five years from now, gosh, you know, you're going to see, um, I, I can't even begin to think, you know, with the amount of innovation that I'm seeing every single day, I, I, could, I, I can't even begin to think where, uh, where we are in five years from now. Um, but it's going to be an exciting, wild ride, and I can't wait to be part of it. Chris Perkins, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ash. And thank you for listening, everyone. All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues. Continues.